Wasn't sure my microphone was going to survive that one. <laughs> Last week, you may remember that we spent some time together backstage, and we have a stage to prove it. We went backstage of redemptive history in Revelation 12, and this week, this morning, we're actually going to take a few steps forward. We're going to come out to the front of the stage and see the actors that are taking instructions from the chiefs behind the curtain. The scenery here in this passage in Matthew 2 is maybe not quite so dramatic, but the action of the story is, as it ranges from the idyllic visit of respectful strangers to the murderous actions of a frightened king. So you young Christians, you young disciples, as you listen to this story as I read it, and maybe your parents want to do this too, I would ask that you take a pen and circle or underline or highlight somehow the characters as we come to them in this story. There are a number of characters in this story. They're all important, and they will be important as we go on through this passage together. Because the ways that they respond to what God is doing will tell you much about your own heart. Matthew 2, beginning in verse 1. You can follow on page 8 in your bulletin. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph In a dream, and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. 
She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Oh Lord, we pray that you would be with us. Would you join us as we gather around your word? And would you make it alive in our souls? Would you grant your spirit that we might understand and believe? That we might recognize how you call us to repent, to turn away from some things and to turn to you in new ways. Help us, Lord, to do that. Because if you don't, we will be lost. We know that you will. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. One morning earlier this fall, I woke up earlier than I usually do, and so I got up and went to the gym. Don't be confused. I don't do that as often as I should. But I went to the gym on that particular morning, and I got out of the car, and it was still dark outside, and as I got out of the car, I noticed a really bright star up in the sky. It was so bright, it caught my attention, and I thought, maybe it's an airplane coming in for landing at Love Field. So I watched it for a moment, but it didn't move. So it had to be some celestial body. So I'm not an astronomer, but I do have a smartphone. And so I pulled it out and and turned to the app called Skyview, which my kids put me on to some time back. Skyview is a great app. If you don't have it, I recommend it. It'll show you, some brilliant person has programmed this thing, to show you all the celestial bodies and where they are in the sky relative to where you are on earth at that particular time. So I turn to my trusty Skyview app and I aim my phone up there at that bright star in the sky and I saw something astonishing. It was not a star. It was Jupiter and Venus and Mars all clustered right together. And they together lined up, were reflecting the pre-dawn sun into the darkness of the Dallas sky like a spotlight. It was amazing. So later I googled that event thinking this has got to be uncommon. How often do three of the planets line up perfectly with the earth so that you can see them all in a cluster together? And I discovered that it it does, of course, happen sometimes, not very often. But the idea of the planets lining up is so unusual and so curious to us that we actually have a phrase to catch it. We talk about when the stars align, when the planets align. And when we say that, what we mean, of course, you know, is that all the conditions are just right so that something amazing is supposed to happen. All the conditions are just so in order for something remarkable to arrive. Maybe it's that long-lost love from high school that you lost touch with. Maybe. Maybe it's that once-in-a-lifetime vacation that you just imagine, we'll never get to do this, but then suddenly all the stars align and you do. Or maybe all the stars align and the Cowboys will finally win a Super Bowl again. Maybe. Maybe all the stars will line up just perfectly and Texas will beat Baylor for once. They did. The stars were lined up, weren't they? And when the stars align, something great is coming. That's what we expect, isn't it? 
but just how we see its arrival shapes our response to it. In Matthew 2, the stars are all aligned. The planets have lined up just so. And this occasion is even suggested back in the Old Testament. Maybe you remember this story from the book of Numbers. There is there this comical almost exchange between a local king named Balak, or Balak, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce his name, Balak, and a local nutcase named Balaam. You know the story because of his name, I bet. Israel, all the people, are passing through the area on their way, on their journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. And they're passing by now the country of Moab. And Balak, the king of Moab, has already heard stories about how these people have handily defeated every other local king who came out to confront them. And Balak doesn't want to confront them. But he does want to curse them. And so he seeks out the help of a pagan prophet named Balaam. And he asks Balaam, who knows of such things, to curse these people as they walk by. Now Balaam agrees to help him, but after being exhorted by a talking donkey, Balaam tells Balak, I can only say what the Israelite God allows me to say. Therefore, Balaam's curses are actually not curses at all, and Balak the king becomes very frustrated with him, and after three tries, he dismisses Balaam altogether. Just go away, Balaam, you're not helpful to me at all. But before he goes, Balaam has one last oracle for this king, and he says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And then Balaam goes on, you know, surely not understanding really what he's saying, goes on and explains how this scepter-bearing star king would come and defeat the agents of the dragon. Again, he didn't use those terms, but that's what he was talking about. And now fast forward to Matthew 2, and hundreds of years later, a group of nutcases come wandering into Jerusalem following that star, not knowing just what had arrived. The Son of God, the King of the Jews, the Lord of creation. Matthew gives us in this story several characters, all of whom receive this arrival, and out of their varying perspectives, they respond in a variety of ways that are helpful to us to to think about. One of them responds with defensive anxiety, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, you have to understand Matthew's Jewish readers in reading this would have known to cringe at this narrative setup. Herod was no friend to the Jews. He was half Jew himself and half Edomites. He was the king of the Jews, in quotes, but not because the Jews wanted him to be. He was the king of the Jews by appointment from the Roman governors decades before. And he was never accepted by the Jews because he was more interested in politics than he was in anticipating a coming Messiah. Herod was a very talented warrior, a very gifted politician, and a very strong administrator and leader 
but he was never accepted by the people he was supposed to govern. And now, after decades, he's probably 70 years old when the wise men come walking into Jerusalem. He's power-hungry, and he's suspicious of everybody. Herod is suspicious and concerned. And so when these wise men arrive asking, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? Herod's answer probably was something like this. I'm the king of the Jews, and there are no babies in my house. I imagine it was probably something like that awkward moment when a well-meaning man asks uh, an expectant mom's due date, and she replies, I'm not pregnant. Probably the wise men had the same kind of squirming feeling when they asked King Herod about this newborn king of the Jews, and they saw the look on his face, and they realized we're asking the wrong guy. Herod was troubled by all of this, and all of Jerusalem was troubled with him, Matthew tells us. The arrival of these wise guys and their questions is not welcomed here at all, and behind the scenes of redemptive history, a dragon stirred. His sleepy eyes opened to the rumbling of fire deep down in his belly, and he grew angry. Now, I pass by most days in driving from our house, a church that has a sign out front that currently says, Pray for revival. That's a good prayer. Every Christian and every church should pray for revival. We should do it more often than we do. We should do it all the time. We should pray for revival day in and day out all the time. We should pray for revival. That's a good prayer, but you have to understand what you're asking for when you pray that. You're asking for disruption. You're asking for the Holy Spirit to throw off the covers with which you have hidden And to disrupt your lives entirely, you're asking for trouble, but not just from God. One theologian very wisely said, whenever there is a spiritual awakening, Satan is one of the first to wake up. And he's anxious to defend his power. Now, we might point fingers at Herod as the foil of this story here, and he certainly is that, there's no doubt. But we also go to similar lengths to defend our power. We don't want to confess our sin. That's one of the hardest things for us to do as Christians is to confess sin because confession is the yielding of power. Confession of sin is the exposure to shame. When we welcome young Christians to the communion table in this church, there are two things that that the elders are looking for in talking with those young Christians. Those two things are repentance and faith. Faith is not too difficult. They've heard a lot of the liturgy of our church. They've talked to their parents. They've been prayed for. They've learned some of the Bible stories and worship training and more. They tend to know what they believe. The hard part is repentance. The hard part is turning away from one thing that will kill you in order to turn to another thing, God, who will give you life. Repentance, confession of sin, is the difficult part. And it's why we have a corporate confession of sin in our liturgy, because we all need to constantly be trained and trained again and retrained 
in how to confess our sins, not just to each other, but to God. It's a hard thing to do because we love power. Herod loved power. He loved power so much that he had three of his sons put to death as well as his wife because he suspected them of threatening his throne. Herod loved his power. Your mode of self-protection may not be violent like that. It's just savvy. It's just clever. It's just intelligent. It's just enough to prevent the gospel from penetrating your heart to a point at which it becomes uncomfortable. But the stars have aligned. Remember, the stars are just lined up. The Messiah has arrived. And so Advent means that not only must you put down your sword, you also have to put down your shield. Some respond with defensive anxiety, but others respond in a different way. Others respond with indifferent unbelief. Before we get to the characters we love, we have to talk about the characters that we ignore in this passage. And Maybe you underline this particular character. Did you notice in verse 4 that Herod, after he got this question from the wise men, immediately took action. And what did he do? He assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. The chief priests and the scribes. Now, this was really, really savvy of Herod. You have to understand. This guy was evil, but he was smart. He knew the context in which he served, and he knew the people to talk to. The chief priests and the scribes. Generally speaking, the chief priests were, among the Jewish community of the time, what was known as Sadducees. Not exclusively, but for the most part, the chief priests were from among the Sadducees. The scribes, or the teachers of the law, were from, of course, the Pharisees most of the time. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, they were both Jews, but they were very different. They were kind of like two different political parties. They thought of things in very different sorts of ways. They had different views of the law of God. They thought of theology in different ways. They accepted some things that the other didn't accept and rejected some that the other didn't reject. The Sadducees were largely aristocratic. They were wealthy, upper-crust folks in the society, and they were conservative. They had much to protect. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were, for the most part, middle-class commoners, and so they related more to the common people. And so there was constant tension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and Herod knew that. And so he gathered them all together, much like you or me gathering input from Fox News on one hand and MSNBC on the other. You know, if the two of them agree on something, you can be pretty sure it's accurate, right? Because most of the time, they don't have much reason to agree. Herod knew that about these two groups of people, and he asked them the question, and guess what? They agreed. In Bethlehem of Judea, they said, for so it's written by the prophet, and they quote from Micah in verse 6 of our passage here. The chief priests and the scribes, the characters that we ignore, they knew their Bible, they answered the question that was asked of them, and they even agreed with each other. But what did they not do? 
It's so subtle in its absence here, you might miss it. Recognize the whole city of Jerusalem is troubled along with Herod by these astrologers, by these magicians who've come to town. And Herod, of all people, now is gathering the Sadducees and the Pharisees together to ask them about their Messiah's birth. Herod is asking them this. Something's afoot. The stars are aligning. And they don't recognize it. What did they not do? They didn't say, hmm, maybe the Messiah has come. Maybe we ought to go along with these nutcases and find out if the Messiah actually has come. Let's go check it out, too. We've been waiting for this all of our lives. We want to see it come as well. Why did they not do this? At best, it's because they were indifferent, and at worst, because they were unbelieving, and maybe those two things are the same thing. Of course, you know, though, that we do this too. I mean, sometimes our indifference and unbelief about the gospel comes about through our distractions. You know the story in the gospels about Mary and Martha when Jesus and his disciples came to their home, and Jesus was teaching the disciples in one room, and Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet listening to all that he had to say while Martha was scurrying around the kitchen gathering food for everyone. And Martha got upset at her sister, and she came to Jesus. You know the story. And she said, Jesus, won't you tell my sister Mary to get up and come help me in the kitchen? And what did Jesus say to her? Martha, you're distracted by lots of stuff. But Mary's chosen what's better, and it won't be taken away from her. You know, the the Advent season brings all kinds of distractions to us, doesn't it? And they're good things. Decorations and parties and gift giving and family time and good food. There's lots of distraction that comes with the Advent season. And you rush through the, the season to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and all the gift giving and family time. And you get a little bit of rest in between that and New Year's. And then you watch a few bowl games and New Year's Day comes. You stay up late the night before and now we have a national champion in college football. Or we used to. Now you've got to wait another week for that. And suddenly you sit down and you realize, I never slowed down. I missed it again. Do you ever feel like that? Year to year, you rush through it. Sometimes our indifferent unbelief comes from our distractions. But here with these people, I think it comes from something else. It comes from their arrogant pride. The chief priests and the scribes, they know all the answers. Oh, Herod, they would have said, we know the answer to this. These Persian bohemians who showed up in town, don't pay attention to them. They don't know anything, Herod. If the Messiah were born, we'd know about it. They had to respond that way. They must have been thinking that in their heart at least, and so they dismissed it entirely. I love the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America. That's the denomination of which our church is a part. It is, I think, one of the truly faithful denominations of Christian churches in our country. And I I say that, I hope, not self-righteously. I think it truly is, as far as denominations go, a faithful denomination to the Word of God. But in our short 40 years of existence, we have largely been characterized by all the answers that we know. We have really good theology, and that's a great heritage for our church. It's extremely important 
Theology is so important. I can't even tell you how important it is. Without good theology, a church goes astray like a ship without an anchor. Largely, that's what we've been known for in our 40 years. But maturity is more than just good answers, isn't it? It's more than that. Maturity is healthy expressions of love and of trust for other believers. A friend of mine pastors a church in another state, a PCA church in another state. He's theologically very careful. We went to seminary together, and he told me recently about a pulpit exchange that that he invited for his church with a number of pastors from black congregations in their community, in their city. And I was very curious about that. I, I said, well, I guess they probably weren't Presbyterian, were they? He said, no, they weren't. They weren't. And I said, well, this is a very typical Presbyterian question for me to ask. I said, so how did you vet their theology? And he looked at me and he said, I didn't. We were already friends. He had built these relationships with these other churches, with the other pastors. They prayed together. He invited them to come and preach in his pulpit because he knew that they didn't see everything eye to eye exactly. They didn't have all the same answers that he had, but he knew they weren't going to come and preach some health and wealth gospel to his people. He didn't vet them for the right answers because he trusted them as a friend. Indifference and unbelief come about through distractions, and they come about through arrogant pride, and we have a lot of all of those things. But the stars have aligned to rearrange every bit of your life in the gospel. Some people respond differently, though. Let's move on to other characters here. Some respond with intense curiosity, the wise men. After Jesus was born, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. The wise men, these are in Greek, the, the, the magos, the magos, the word is. It's the same word from which we get our word magician, the magi. These were magicians. Now, they may have been nutcases, but they were not the storefront palm reader types that we think of today. So don't confuse them with that. These are important figures, important characters in their society of the ancient day. They were advisors to kings. These men knew astronomy. We might call it astrology, the way they used it, and looked at the alignment of the planets and the stars to decide what was true or not. They knew some magic, and they knew something about interpreting dreams, and all of these things they put to use in advising the kings that they advised. Now, we have to understand, too, as we move through this passage and see them come to town, that there were not probably just three magi. They come with three different types of gifts, but they're very expensive gifts. And three men on camels wouldn't trek through the desert for a thousand miles without some kind of entourage. There probably were three or five or ten magi and probably a whole host of bodyguards with them. This was a bit of a crowd. You know that because all of Jerusalem is disturbed by their arrival. Not just Herod, but all of Jerusalem. It would be kind of like saying that the town of Denton, Texas would be disturbed by three guys with tattoos on Harleys rumbling into town. They wouldn't even know they were there. This is a pretty big crowd of guys that rolls into Jerusalem and they probably have tattoos. Evidently, two years before they got there, an unusual star had appeared and spurred them on to this journey. 
Europeans, they came from the east, maybe from Babylon, maybe from that region where Daniel had spent some time hundreds of years before. Maybe they knew something about the prophet Daniel. Maybe that's why they thought maybe this star over that direction means something for the Israelites, for the Jews. And so they traveled far and long to pay homage to this newborn king. They were intensely curious. Have you ever been intensely curious about the gospel? Have you ever had one of those sort of retreat weekend mountaintop experiences? I can remember one when I was in junior high coming home thinking, wow, I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to pray every day. I'm going to do good things. You know, we come down from the mountaintop sort of experience thinking, now things are going to be different. I'm intensely curious about this gospel thing that I've heard about and I want my life to be different. Or maybe your intense curiosity is stirred by knowing some doctrine or new truth that you didn't know before. I can remember getting involved with RUF, the campus ministry in college, that was so helpful to me as a student. And I began to hear theological truths that I hadn't heard before, but there they were in the Bible, and I was so curious. I began to think of going to seminary. I wanted to learn more about this stuff, but I eventually realized it was one of the few wise moments of my life that just going to seminary because you're curious is probably not a great idea. There are other matters involved that tend to shape your life if you do that. But maybe your curiosity is provoked by that. Those things are not bad. It's good to have a mountaintop experience. It's good to have new doctrine come and shape your life. But like the Magi and their astrology, it's incomplete by itself. If you're just curious about the gospel then eventually it will give way to something else. It will give way to a hobby or some other interest that's more perplexing and intriguing to you at a future moment. But the Magi seem to show more than that, don't they? Whatever motivated their curiosity, they seem to have made some progress in faith as they traveled along. We don't know if they were converted. Matthew doesn't tell us outright that these guys became Christians. It's it's not quite that clear to us. But... Despite Herod's polite aggression, if you want to call it that, towards them, despite the Jews' disinterest in their quest, the Magi pressed on. And they moved on to make the four- or five-mile journey south to Bethlehem from Jerusalem. And finding Jesus, Matthew tells us, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they gave. They gave an important response to the gospel they gave. They gave the best gifts that they could get their hands on. They gave gold, the medal of kings in the ancient days. Who doesn't want a bag full of gold? They gave frankincense. You and I don't care about frankincense, I don't think, but in that day, frankincense was a a sticky, sweet-smelling resin used to make perfumes and incense, and it was gathered by hand from trees at great effort and great cost. It was very expensive. And myrrh. Myrrh was one of the most valuable spices in the ancient world, costing the equivalent of thousands of dollars for just a little bit, even then. Now, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, we we tend to want to, in our nativity scenes, make some kind of symbolic issue of these things. What did they symbolize? I don't know. I'm I'm not sure that they actually symbolized anything in particular except this. These guys gave the best gifts they could get their hands on. 
in modern day terms, we'd say they did not come to Jesus with tin cans and chiclets and Old Spice. Rather, they came to him with certificates for Amazon stock. And they came to him with a 70-inch ultra-high-def flat-screen smart TV. And they came to him with a Mercedes, with the keys and everything. They came to him with the best gifts that they could bring. They came with intense curiosity, but so much more. They came, and Matthew tells us, they fell down and worshipped him. These were strange characters. They're, they're mysterious in the Bible, but they seem to have understood what happens when the stars align. The Lord of creation demanded their allegiance, and they gave it. But there's another response here to finish off in Joseph, a response that might seem most noble of all, I suppose. See his devoted obedience. The arrival of this king, Jesus, is very disruptive, so much so that when the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and what did he say to Joseph? Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, because the dragon is coming. The dragon is coming, Joseph. You've got to get up and go. And Joseph, devoted to the word that he'd received, did just as he was told. He got up with his wife and young child, one-year-old, two-year-old at the time, saddled their donkey and took off for Egypt. It's about 300 miles. Now, if you can imagine, in those days when your firstborn was an infant, saddling a donkey, you don't get your car, folks, saddling a donkey and taking off on the trails from Dallas to San Antonio. That'd be a hard trip, wouldn't it? Joseph, in devoted obedience, did exactly what he was told to do. It's a good thing they had some gold and frankincense and myrrh. I expect they probably needed it to pay some expenses along the way. And it's actually, if you think about it, a very remarkable testimony to the humanity of God's Redeemer. Because when this news comes of Herod's threat, there's no angel warrior contingent that surrounds Bethlehem. There's no amazing miracle of Herod's warriors approaching Bethlehem and their swords vaporize or melt in their hands. Nothing like that happens here. Although those sorts of things had happened in the Old Testament, they don't happen here. Rather, Joseph gets the word, rise and flee. The point is this. Jesus knows the feeling of being human. If Herod's soldiers had found The infant Jesus and sword and flesh made contact. Blood would have flowed and death would have followed. He was human, but he also was God. And if you're paying attention to the bigger picture here, then this bit of the story should sound sort of familiar. Okay, think about it. A man named Joseph has a dream. And because of that strange dream, he ends up in Egypt. And for a long season, his family grows and matures in Egypt before he finally returns to Israel. This had happened before. In fact, Matthew connects the dots for us in verse 15. He says, this was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Hosea is that prophet. 
And what Hosea had said, referring to the Old Testament exodus, was this. The words of God through Hosea. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more I called him, the further he wandered away to idols. That first round of God calling his son out of Egypt was not successful. Because Israel, that son, was the son who required redemption. That son was not devoted to obedience to its calling God. But Jesus, Matthew wants us to recognize, is the faithful son. Jesus is the true Israelite. He's the one who's truly devoted to obedience. You know, God, in love, had called Israel out of Egypt some 1,500 years before. But they wandered. They wandered not just on foot, but they wandered in heart. And now, another Joseph, with a crazy dream, lands in Egypt, only to return with a toddler son who would not wander. A son who would live in complete devoted obedience. A son who would so perfectly fulfill the law of God that at the end of his life, he would duplicate Herod's feet by bringing the Sadducees and the Pharisees together in complete agreement that he should be put to death. And then he would rise again. Advent is the coming. We all have to remember and recognize it is the coming. It is the great arrival of the great king. And how does your heart respond to it? Turn away from your anxiety. Turn away from your unbelief and indifference. And let your curiosity become more than just intense. And trust and depend not on your devoted obedience, but on the devoted obedience of Jesus the Son. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, thank you that you've given us your word, that you have fulfilled your promises to us in Jesus, and gained for us entrance into your kingdom. Lord, we give you thanks for that, and pray that you would move our hearts, stir us, Lord, to change, to turn away from what will kill us and turn to you who gives us life. We pray, O Lord, that you would do that in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.